And I remember we were doing a uh, expo and the Chicago Business and Cultural Exposition. We had all the top stars, Nancy Wilson and Kendall Adderley and uh, Isaac Hayes and the various temptations of various groups. And so Junius Griffin, who used to PR for Barry Gordy in, in Motown, said some kids wanted to perform at the expo. I said, we don't have any room for them. Civil rights activist Reverend Jesse Jackson of the Rainbow Push Coalition. We spoke in September 2017 at the Beverly Hills Hotel. He said, well, at least the kids want to meet you. Come downstairs and say hi to them. They're downstairs in the station wagon with their little instruments hooked to the back of the car. <laughs> I went down, and they were so infectious. Oh, Reverend, we want to take your picture. We want to do autographs with you. And so we stood and said, well, I'll tell you what, Saturday afternoon, you can do a matinee. They were kind of throw in. Needless to say, uh, Ewood Avenue in Motown, he, he had he an had understanding of what was going to happen. He invested in a big round table for the Jackson Five to perform, and it took off and never, never came back down to the ground. <laughs> for 11 months following the trial, Michael Jackson lived in Bahrain, a kingdom in the Persian Gulf, with his children. According to the LA Times, after Jackson left Neverland, he received a summons to appear at the Santa Maria Courthouse for jury duty, the same courthouse in which he was prosecuted. Jackson attorney Robert Sanger, one of the lawyers who defended him in the trial, called court officials to tell them that Jackson would no longer be living at Neverland and wouldn't be available for jury duty. CNN reported that the wealthy son of the King of Bahrain and friend to Jermaine Jackson, Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamad al-Khalifa, became a benefactor of sorts for Jackson. The Sheikh had his own musical aspirations, and he bankrolled Jackson's expenses, paying off $2 million in his outstanding legal fees. The Sheikh even built him a studio to record an album written by the Sheikh himself. But Jackson soon left, and Sheikh Abdullah sued him in London's high court for $7 million, claiming, among other things, that the singer reneged on their music contract. They settled out of court, according to Time magazine, and Jackson moved briefly to Ireland, and then to Las Vegas. In the summer of 2007, he began discussions with AEG Live CEO Randy Phillips about staging a series of concerts at the 20,000-seat O2 Arena in London. According to a chronicle of the deal in Rolling Stone, Jackson lost interest in the idea. Jackson was in fiscal turmoil, with reports estimating his debt load to be as much as $500 million. There were reports, too, that Neverland was facing foreclosure. Having so many outstanding loans he struggled to pay down, Jackson's options to restructure his finances were becoming dismal. He soon agreed that the comeback shows might be a good idea. On Halloween Day of 2008, Jackson met again with Phillips to discuss the possibility. Phillips later said that Jackson maintained that his main reason for resuming his concert appearances was to settle down and provide a stable home for his three children. He signed a contract with AEG in January of 2009, according to a report in USA Today. This is it, a residency show of 50 concerts at that O2 Arena in London, set to take place from July of 2009 
to February 2010 was negotiated. It was initially intended to be Jackson's final run of live performances, a dramatic end to his storied and checkered career. But as his excitement about the project mounted, he and Phillips talked about taking the tour to New York City and Paris, even doing movie projects, according to the USA Today story. As the Los Angeles Times and other news outlets pointed out, Jackson hadn't toured since 1997, and his last major concert had been at Madison Square Garden in 2001. Jackson was collaborating with fashion designer Zaldi, his longtime L.A.-based costume designers, Michael Bush and Dennis Tompkins, and many others on clothing, and with choreographer Travis Payne on dance moves. Jackson's longtime collaborator, Kenny Ortega, directed. Lou Ferrigno, a bodybuilder who played The Incredible Hulk, was hired as Jackson's personal trainer. At Jackson's insistence, also hired at the expense of AEG Live, was Dr. Conrad Murray, a cardiologist who was born in the Caribbean island nation of Granada, as Jackson's personal physician for $150,000 a month, a sum that was never paid because his contract wasn't finalized. It had the potential for record-breaking ticket sales and offered Jackson a last opportunity to finish his legendary musical life on a powerful note. Instead, This Is It would be remembered as one of the greatest concert extravaganzas that never happened. Toward the end of the rehearsal period, just 19 days before the concert was scheduled to debut, Jackson fans received grim news. CNN sources are now saying, multiple sources, that Michael Jackson is in a coma at UCLA Medical Center, suffered uh, from cardiac arrest, and is now in a coma. Los Angeles Times citing city and law enforcement sources saying that pop star Michael Jackson has died. This appears to be the official confirmation that we were waiting for. The TMZ website did report this some 20 minutes or so ago, uh, but it now seems that the Los Angeles Times have had confirmation from city and law enforcement sources that 50-year-old pop star Michael Jackson has died. When, um, can you tell me a little bit about where you were when you heard that Michael passed? In Chicago. I wept big tears. I was so hurt. Reverend Jesse Jackson, again. Because I've known him since he was a child. I watched him grow, watched his family grow, a phenomenal family, really. When the media tends to try to pick, pick flowers apart and take them out the vase and see are they still, are they, are they still growing. The fact is, you can imagine 11 people living in four rooms on triple-top beds, and yet the living room became the stage for practice, and they just became, out of nowhere it seems, to become the most phenomenal family in the world. And uh, when I heard about it, I was just taken aback. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 13, The Music is Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Bubba, what's up, man? Well, this is it, Omar. Our last goddamn phone call. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, at least for the season, like season one, the last show of no, this no, season. No, 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 no. I have no interest in speaking to you after this. I've always <laughs> found you pretentious. Yeah. Disingenuous. <laughs> Sometimes. I don't like your jokes. <laughs> I've never particularly liked the fact that you drive a Mercedes. <laughs> No, I love you. This makes me sad. I'm actually kind of bluesy about it. The only thing really keeping me going is this chubby little baby taking a snooze in the other room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love you too, man. I, you know, this has been a great journey and I I can't wait to see what happens next. But anyways, Michael Jackson died of a drug overdose. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty good transition. You're getting the hang of it. That's Well, we don't have time for the chit chat. I got a lot to pack in this last one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. All right. So let's get on it. Um, Yeah. So remind me what year uh, Michael Jackson passed away. Michael Jackson died on June 25th, 2009. His memorial service was held at the Staples Center in Los Angeles on July 7th. 21,000 fans, celebrities, and supporters filled the arena, and 1,000 more were on the streets outside. The service was live-streamed on hundreds of websites and mobile platforms, as well as broadcast via the more traditional media of television and radio to an audience estimated as high as 1 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, around the world. People watched, shouted their feelings to the screens, and sang along to the songs as if the world was one big concert arena in venues ranging from a Starbucks in Las Vegas to a multiplex theater in Atlanta, to the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit, where, according to LA Times coverage of the event, more than a thousand people attended. At the memorial service, pop artists covered Jackson's songs, and family members extolled Jackson's brilliance. There were montage and tribute videos, speeches about Jackson's impact on underprivileged children, and vows to preserve his status as an international icon. The event which lasted nearly three hours, was likened to a gospel service. Michael's family sat in the front row, his brothers each wearing a single white sequin glove. Stevie Wonder, Mariah Carey, Usher, and Jennifer Hudson sang popular Jackson and Jackson 5 songs. Brooke Shields, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, Motown founder Barry Gordy, and Smokey Robinson gave impassioned eulogies. Queen Latifah read a tribute poem about Jackson, written by Maya Angelou. Political figures took the stage, including, no relation, Democratic U.S. Representative of Texas, 
Sheila Jackson Lee, who, on stage, held up a copy of a resolution she had proposed in the House to honor Michael Jackson as an international humanitarian. Because the resolution would have to be debated on the floor of the House of Representatives, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi quashed the idea a few days later, saying that although she believed Jackson was, quote, a great performer, a resolution would open up to contrary views that are not necessary at this time. No one believed in those days that these kind of dreams could come true. But they kept on believing, and Michael never let the world turn him around from his dreams. It was that dream that changed culture all over the world. Amid the well-wishing and tears, Reverend Al Sharpton gave a eulogy for the singer. When Michael started, it was a different world. But because Michael kept going, because he didn't accept limitations, because he refused to let people decide his boundaries, he opened up the whole world. In the music world, he put on one glove, pulled his pants up, and broke down the color curtain where now our videos are shown and magazines put us on the cover. It was Michael Jackson that brought blacks and whites and Asians and Latinos together. It was Michael Jackson that made us sing We Are The World and feed the hungry long before live aid. Sharpton spoke about how he believed that because a young Michael Jackson touched the lives of so many people of different colors, he opened the doors for watching Oprah Winfrey as a daytime television host, or, as adults, those same people felt comfortable enough to vote for Barack Obama. Then, Sharpton turned to the child molestation allegations that dogged Jackson for the latter part of his life. There are those that like to dig around mess, but millions around the world, we're going to uphold his message. It's not about mess It's about his love message. As you climb up steep mountains, sometimes you scar your knee. Sometimes you break your skin. But don't focus on the scars. Focus on the journey. Michael Beater, Michael rose to the top. He outsang his cynics. He outdanced his doubters. He outperformed the pessimists. Every time he got knocked down, he got back up. Every time you counted him out, he came back in. Michael never stopped. Michael never stopped. Michael never stopped. We black people are forgivers. We we forgive. Former Jackson attorney Carl Douglas. I mean, we understand oppression and the implications of it as a minority in a white society. And so we are always willing to take come on back baby we'll hug you in our black arms johnny cochran embraced that and his influence was certainly impactful of michael and oj and when you're saying we forgive do you mean that in the black community if it if it was whether jackson was guilty or not and whether they felt he was guilty or not there's forgiveness They felt he was unfairly targeted by the greater white community. And they believed his claims of innocence. I say no one can understand the verdict of the O.J. Simpson trial 
without understanding the bruising history between African-American community and the police. And here was this white kid. They thought he, I mean, he, he was, he, he is darker than some black people who work in my office, Chandler, which was stunning to me. But looking at his mother, looking at his father, his stepfather, you thought he was a, this white kid accusing this icon of misconduct. Um, we rally, we rally to support our own because we know how unfairly we leaders and figures have been oppressed by the greater community, great society. So we know racism. We're sensitive to it. They always go after our leaders. So we're, come on back, come on back. We forgive you for, for, for going astray, but welcome back. Just days after Michael Jackson's death, an erroneous item appeared on a blog, purporting to quote Jordan Chandler, saying, in broken English, that he had finally recanted his accusations against the singer. Now, for the time I can't bear to lie anymore, it read, supposedly the words of Jordy, Michael Jackson didn't do anything to me. All was my father, lies to escape from being poor. The Post which was likely a fabrication by a hopeful Jackson fan looking for attention, is cited as being completely false by Snopes.com, a website dedicated to fact-checking internet rumors. Snopes points out that the sole appearance of the poorly worded item was on a blog with no other attribution and, despite the near-continuous press coverage of Jackson following his death, it was never picked up by the news media. Yet, the Geordie recanting post gained traction on pro-Jackson blogs and fan sites, and members of the Jackson family repeated the unverified claim. While it was false that Jordan recanted, the Chandler family's troubles continued, shockingly in the case of Evan Chandler. The gruesome scene unfolded behind locked doors at this luxury waterfront high-rise here on Hudson Street in Jersey City. Multiple sources reporting former Beverly Hills dentist turned aspiring screenwriter Evan Chandler was found dead here inside his Jersey City home. Chandler is the father of the boy who once accused Michael Jackson of molestation. Evan Chandler shot himself in the head on November 5, 2009. Reporter Peter Thorne of New York's WPIX Channel 11 was live outside the Jersey City high-rise once the news broke 12 days later. They tell us the building concierge went to check on the victim after his doctor was concerned that his patient missed an appointment and might be ill. Published reports say Evan Chandler was seriously ill with an undisclosed health problem. It was that concierge, police say, who made the grisly discovery of a lifeless body. Following the 1994 settlement with Michael Jackson, Jordan Chandler emancipated himself from both his parents, moving in with Evan's second wife, who by then had divorced Evan. According to court records from the Superior Court of New Jersey, in August of 2005, Jordan, Jordy Chandler, filed for a restraining order against his father. During the time they shared a household, the records allege, Evan Chandler attacked his son with a 12-and-a-half-pound barbell, sprayed him with either mace or pepper spray, and attempted to choke his son. Jordy, was granted a temporary restraining order by the court. An article published in the New York Post, citing family sources, reported that in the years leading up to his death, Evan Chandler suffered from depression and tremendous mood swings, 
and stopped coming to family events, and, as further evidence of his paranoia, began to undergo excessive plastic surgery so that he wouldn't be recognized by Jackson fans. In the end, Evan was unrecognizable to his own family. The weapon Evan Chandler used to kill himself was a 38 caliber revolver, a gun London's Daily Mail reported that he purchased for protection after being harassed and threatened by Michael Jackson fans after his son's accusations came out, fearing for his life. Well past his death, Evan Chandler continues to be the linchpin in the varied conspiracy theories of Jackson's supporters. Evan's decision to seek money from Jackson rather than go to the police, his negotiations with Jackson's camp over how to resolve the allegations, and then his suicide, all reinforce those who doubt his motives and sincerity. At the same time, it's also true that Dr. Richard Gardner, who interviewed Jordy in 1993, concluded that Jordy had been molested by Michael Jackson. According to the transcript of that interview from October 6, 1993, portions of which were published in both Diane Diamond's Chronicle of the Jackson Cases, Be Careful Who You Love, and Raymond Chandler's account of the 1993 case, All That Glitters, and which was authenticated for me by Dr. Stan Katz, who reviewed video of the interview, Jordan Chandler actually seemed to view his father not as a gold digger who brainwashed him into making false allegations, but as his savior. What would you say is the best thing that ever happened to you in your whole life? Dr. Gardner asked Jordan Chandler, according to the transcript of their interview. When I told my dad what Michael was doing to me, Jordan Chandler responds. Why do you say that? Because, Jordan said, once I told him, I knew that Michael would never be able to do that to me again. And when something horrible ends, it's most likely the best thing in your life, like a prisoner being released from prison. The year following Jackson's death was filled with legal battles over his estate between Jackson's mother, Catherine, and attorney, John Branca, and music executive, John McLean. According to Jackson's will that he signed in 2002, Branca and McLean were named as co-executors for the Jackson estate. It left everything to his mother, Catherine, his three children, and various charities. Jackson's mother sought and received from the court permission to challenge the executors, even though she was a beneficiary. She challenged their authority, saying she wanted more control of her son's estate, including being named as a co-executor, according to CNN. Jackson's estate, by some reports, was estimated to be worth $500 million, although his assets were accompanied by so much debt that some speculated he might be insolvent. On October 28th, a documentary of behind-the-scenes rehearsal footage of Jackson preparing for his last concert series, called This Is It, was released in theaters. The film, made from a deal orchestrated by Branca and McLean, was incredibly profitable for the estate. In November, Catherine Jackson dropped her challenge to the two co-executors, according to CNN. Earlier this year, the Associated Press reported that the film had brought in $261.2 million in worldwide box office receipts and had become the highest-grossing concert film and music documentary of all time. Catherine's decision 
came as a complete surprise to her husband, Joe Jackson, who tried to pick up her case where she left off. But a judge denied his request because the judge found Michael Jackson had never listed his father as a beneficiary, much less as an executor. The estate wasn't quite out of the woods just yet. A flood of claims were filed against the estate, and each had to be considered. Lawyers overseeing the estate rejected a number of claims, so many that it looked at times like a series of clowns exiting, well, a clown car. There was a claim by All Good Entertainment for $300 million because, it alleged, a Jackson family concert was derailed by Michael's ill-fated O2 This Is It shows. There was a Los Angeles man, a private citizen, who wanted $3.3 million to reimburse the city for Jackson's memorial at Staples Center. There was another man who asked for $5 million in reimbursement for an auction of Jackson memorabilia that was canceled. There was a woman seeking $50 million because she was convinced Michael Jackson tapped her phone and had organized criminals to spy on her. There were inevitable paternity claims. And on and on. Michael Jackson's death from acute propofol intoxication was ruled a homicide, and Dr. Conrad Murray, the cardiologist who was hired at Jackson's insistence, was arrested and stood trial on charges of involuntary manslaughter. The trial of Dr. Murray is worthy of a series unto itself. The doctor's defense team put on witnesses to argue that Jackson became addicted to Demerol and had a history of drug problems. The prosecution argued that Dr. Murray had strayed from accepted medical standards by administering the propofol for Jackson's insomnia, that he was reckless in his treatment, had acted with gross negligence, and ultimately was to blame for the death of Michael Jackson. On November 7, 2011, the jury reached a verdict. Superior Court of California, Los Angeles County. The people of the state of California plaintiff versus Conrad Robert Murray defendant. Case number SA073164. Title of court and cause. We, the jury in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Conrad Robert Murray, guilty of the crime of involuntary manslaughter in violation of Penal Code Section 192, Subsection B. Alleged victim, Michael Joseph Jackson. Alleged date of June 25, 2009. As charged in Count 1 of the information. Outside the courthouse, Jackson fans, some of them holding signs calling Dr. Conrad Murray a killer, cheered the verdict, elated to put the responsibility of Michael Jackson's death on anyone but Michael Jackson himself. Well, he speculated on about the worst position that he can speculate as to every, every issue in this case. The judge was, I thought he was openly hostile. Following the verdict, one of Conrad Murray's defense attorneys, J. Michael Flanagan, commented at a press conference on the judge's ruling to demand Dr. Murray into custody until his sentencing because he was, quote, a danger to society. Some people think he is, apparently. Uh, I don't, you know, you never know. He could have bolted out of those courtroom doors and uh, run down, 
punched that elevator and by within five minutes got to the bottom of the floor and he could have gone out and, and injected a bunch of people with propofol. Do you really think he was a danger? He's led 56 years of exemplary life. The lead prosecutor in the trial, Deputy DA David Walgren, appeared at a separate press conference to say he thought it was a fair trial and to thank the Jackson family for its support. A side note, Walgren was appointed as an L.A. County Superior Court judge the year after the trial. He serves in the San Fernando Courthouse today. Dr. Murray was sentenced to a maximum four years and served two years in the Los Angeles County Jail due to state prison overcrowding. Following his release, the unremorseful Murray posted a video on his website where he revisited arguments in the trial and attempted to show that he was unaware of the many other drugs Michael Jackson was taking and therefore was not responsible for his death. A portion of the video appeared on CNN. So in Michael's case, what he needed that night was not Demerol. It was not propofol, excuse me. He needed to have Demerol. In the video, Dr. Murray is seated on a stool and points to a chart on a television monitor where a spreadsheet-like document is displayed that he indicates is the litany of drugs Jackson had allegedly been taking. Murray alleged that another doctor had gotten Michael Jackson addicted to Demerol, and Jackson was going through withdrawals the night of his death, unbeknownst to Dr. Murray. So the cocktail of drugs that Murray administered were unsuccessful in helping Jackson sleep, including the propofol, he said. But since his supply chain was cut from Beverly Hills, he was on his own. And he had never shared that with me. Dr. Murray later authored and self-published a book on the subject called This Is It, The Secret Lives of Dr. Conrad Murray and Michael Jackson. A more significant publishing event for both the Jackson fan community and his detractors came with the partial, heavily redacted release of FBI files kept on the singer since the early 1990s. The release of the files, in response to Freedom of Information Act requests, was widely reported in the news. There are more than 300 pages of material. Much of it is routine back and forth, but there are some real gems in the cache. For instance, there were letters from a Frank Paul Jones to Michael Jackson and the first President Bush, George H.W. Jones was arrested in the driveway of the Jackson family's estate as he was making threats. He had been stalking Janet Jackson and threatening to commit mass murder at a Michael Jackson concert. His letters would begin with, I hope you receive this letter in good health and good spirits. Then he would go on with the death threats. He was charged with sending threats through the mail, to which he eventually pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years in prison, according to the LA Times and Reuters news agency. There were pages on the LAPD requesting help from the FBI during their 1993 investigation, and the FBI facilitating investigators meeting with former Neverland employees Faye and Mark Quindoy, who had made claims of seeing Jackson molest children and had moved to Manila in the Philippines. There were details about the FBI's 1993 investigation into UK reports about Jackson's indecent phone calls to a 13-year-old British boy in 1979. 
there was a handwritten summary dated August 24, 1993, of a tip from a woman in Canada. According to the statement, the woman said she and her husband, who both worked in children's services, took a train from Chicago to the Grand Canyon and continued on to California in March of 1992. The woman said that Michael Jackson was on that train and had four compartments he shared with a 12- to 13-year-old boy he identified as his cousin. The FBI notes say, quote, Jackson was very possessive of a boy at night, end quote, and that the caller, quote, heard questionable noises through the wall, and she was concerned enough to notify the conductor of her suspicions. Jackson fans often point to the FBI files as proof of his innocence, as do some of the family, including Michael's nephew, Taj Jackson, here appearing on the hip-hop radio talk show, The Breakfast Club, to defend his uncle. Co-host Leonard Larry McKelvey, known professionally as Charlemagne the God, speaks first. So let me ask you a question, um, just to play devil's advocate, because I, I want to see, if, do you think that any of these rumors could possibly be true about your uncle? 100% no. 100% no. I mean, my uncle was one of the most scrutinized people in the world. He had a 10-year, a secret 10-year FBI investigation going on on him, you know, that no one knew about. This is a mischaracterization, since the FBI had no active investigation on Jackson, at least according to the FBI files that were released. The redacted files did confirm that the FBI had been assisting local law enforcement agencies under what's known as domestic police cooperation agreements, where local agencies such as the LAPD and or the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department requested assistance. There were no records in the Freedom of Information Act file of operational FBI cases on Jackson regarding the child molestation investigations within the release, no major revelations, nothing proven or disproven. Luis Palanker, the former benefactor to the Arvizo family, still maintains that Michael Jackson sexually abused children and the Arvizos were not motivated by money. You know, you can say a lot about the Arvizos. I mean, they can be pretty far out of balance, but they were not interested in shaking Michael Jackson down for his money. They were interested in doing the right thing. And you haven't heard a word from Gavin or Starr since this trial. You know, I, I think the Jackson fans could argue, well, if they had won, they would have filed a civil lawsuit, but I can tell you they would not have. People are complicated, and Michael Jackson was a genius, and somebody or something or lots of people or lots of things damaged him, and he became a vampire. He didn't have a childhood, and he was sucking the childhood out of other children, and no matter what happened to him, it's just simply not okay. It's not okay that a lot of people around him enabled it. And that's, that's to me, even darker than Michael, is, is all of the enabling. According to Ron Zonin, following her testimony at the 2005 trial, Palenker met the prosecutor for a cup of coffee. Two years later, the two began dating. They married in 2011. Their wedding was attended by both Gavin and Star Arvizo, as well as reporter Diane Diamond. Details observed by some in the Jackson fan community to be more evidence of a conspiracy against the singer. 
Prosecutor Ron Zonin and Luis Palenker kept in touch with the Arvizo brothers and said they were not interested in commenting on their history with Michael Jackson. We, we have stayed close um, with uh, Gavin and Starr. And it's now, how many years later? 13 years later? Um, they're both accomplished young men. I mean, Gavin was the first in his family to go to college, and he went to Emory University, one of the top 20 universities in America, on a scholarship. He graduated on schedule with a double major. He's, he's um, and, and with honors, with honors in a double major. Both Luis Palenker and Ron Zonin received invitations to Gavin Arvizo's wedding in 2013. So did Diane Diamond, who, with Gavin's permission, wrote about the experience for the Daily Beast. According to the story by Diamond, diehard Jackson fans stalked and shared Gavin's personal information online, harassed, and threatened to maim or kill him. When they found out that Gavin was going to marry a preacher's daughter, they inundated the church with calls questioning Gavin's integrity. Yet, Gavin, the only accuser to follow through with a trial in which he testified about his alleged sexual abuse, never filed a civil suit against Jackson, and, according to Diamond, refused handsome offers to sell his story or write a book. Instead, Gavin simply went on with his life. Reporter Diane Diamond. I was a little surprised that I actually got an invitation to go to Gavin's wedding. Um, We also got to go to the reception afterward, which was kind of a hoot. Um, This was not a liquor-drinking reception, although you could go out in the hall and buy your own if you wanted. But they had a DJ playing music at the wedding and a dance floor, as typical. You know, people were up dancing and little flower girls and the... the, the, um, ring bearer and it was very cute and so we got up and danced my husband and I and as one song ended the DJ then put on a Michael Jackson song and I looked around the room really quick and I locked eyes with Gavin and he kind of looked at me with this blank stare and then he shrugged his shoulders like hey what are you going to do you know the music is everywhere How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. The same year that Gavin Arvizo got married, one of Jackson's former special friends, who once defended the singer in court, came forward to say the story he had been telling and even testified to at the 2005 trial was a lie. In May of 2013, choreographer Wade Robeson went on the Today Show to say that his former mentor was a sexual predator. So before I ask you specifics, what's your mindset right now? What's my mindset? Um, I feel strong. I feel like this is the right thing to do because this is my truth. Wade Robeson, here interviewed by Matt Lauer, which, you know, Matt Lauer, am I right? Let me take you back to 2005, Wade, all right? The child molestation trial of Michael Jackson. You were the first witness called by the defense, and the attorney for Michael Jackson said he called you first because you were so convincing and powerful, asserting the innocence of Michael Jackson. And here we are these years later, and you're going to say just the opposite, right? What happened? First of all, one thing I want to clear up is that this is not a case of repressed memory. And it's been reported in the press some. I never forgot one moment of what Michael did to me. But I was psychologically and emotionally completely unable and, and unwilling to understand that it was sexual abuse. From seven years old, from day one of the abuse, Michael told me that we loved each other and that this was love, that this was a, an expression of our love. And then you'd follow that up with, you know, but if you ever tell anyone what we're doing, both of our lives and our careers will be over. He was the defense primary witness. He was the first witness for the defense. I cross-examined him. Prosecutor Ron Zonin. He was the one that Thomas Mesro said was clearly the most credible young man he had ever seen in his life. Most credible witness he had ever had in any case he had ever had. Well, that man now says he was a victim of sexual abuse over a many-year period of time. And, and he was compelling. He's intelligent, he's articulate, he's presentable. We believe that he was molested. He wouldn't, um, he wouldn't confirm that it was true. He said it wasn't. Got on the witness stand, said Michael Jackson was always a gentleman, never touched him inappropriately, never did anything to him. And then years later, he says, no, I, I now have a child, and I now understand the significance of this, and I can't keep the secret any longer. I was a victim of horrendous sexual abuse by Michael Jackson over a seven-year period. That's what we thought all along. Um, and, but it was a challenge to be able to get witnesses to do that. A second witness has now come forward and done the same thing. A second accuser who came forward was James Safechuck, who also goes by Jimmy. Safechuck, who was born in the Southern California community of Simi Valley, first met Jackson when he starred with the singer in a Pepsi commercial. He later accompanied Jackson on the Bad Tour for several months. Safechuck was interviewed by authorities during the 1993 Jordan Chandler case, but denied Jackson molested him. 
Like Robeson, Safechuck maintains that he decided to come forward with the story of his abuse after his wife gave birth to their child. Robeson and Safechuck filed to be considered as claimants to Michael Jackson's estate. Robeson in 2013, Safechuck in 2014, both alleging that Jackson had sexually molested them as children. Both men's claims were dismissed by the court in 2015, citing statute of limitations issues. The two men then tried a different tack, going after the late singer's businesses. In 2013, Wade Robeson sued Jackson's MJJ Productions and MJJ Ventures. In his suit, he contended that the two companies had helped facilitate the abuse and were negligent. In 2014, Safechuck filed a similar suit against the two companies, also alleging that they facilitated Jackson's relationship with Safechuck as a child so that Jackson could engage in childhood sexual abuse of Safechuck and others. Safechuck alleged it took him years to understand that his relationship with Jackson wasn't love, but abuse. He spent his early adult life having panic attacks and battling anxiety and depression, he declared in his complaint, and, like Wade Robeson, after having a child, he was given the perspective needed to come to terms with his abuse. The trial court rejected their arguments in 2017, concluding that the companies could not be held liable for Jackson's conduct, and also finding that the allegations were filed too late under the statute of limitations for alleged offenses. Nancy Dillon of the New York Daily News wrote, Without ruling on the merits of the sex abuse claims, the judge said Jackson was the sole shareholder of defendants MJJ Productions and MJJ Ventures during his lifetime, so no one else at the companies had the power to override his wishes. In her story, Dillon quoted Judge Mitchell Beckloff's ruling, saying that the defendant's relationship with Michael Jackson did not result in the exposure of plaintiff to the alleged sexual abuse. Just to remind everyone here, the defendant is not the now-dead Michael Jackson, but his companies. To continue the judge's ruling, quote, defendant's involvement with Michael Jackson and plaintiff was incidental to the alleged sexual abuse. Both Robeson and Safechuck appealed, and their cases were consolidated in California's Second Court of Appeal, where they remain on appeal. All right, so it was, it was like the judge was saying that, um, like, I don't even need to figure out whether Wade Robeson and James uh, Safechuck were molested, because even if they were, the companies weren't responsible, so they can't sue the companies. Yeah, so it doesn't pass judgment about molestation at all. To Jackson's fans, though, it looked like just another case lost in court by a conniving lying accuser looking for money. The fans and members of Jackson's own family would also point to Wade Robeson not getting a job at the Michael Jackson-themed Cirque du Soleil show in Vegas as kind of being his motivation for the lawsuit. Robeson uh. has countered that he was not denied a job there, but actually did work on the shows and that he, quote, removed himself from the show, according to an interview he gave to the Associated Press earlier this year. One of Jackson's attorneys commented on the ruling, In my opinion, Mr. Robeson's allegations, made 20-plus years after they supposedly occurred and years after Mr. Robeson testified twice under oath, including in front of a jury, that Michael Jackson had never done anything wrong to him, 
were always about the money rather than a search for truth. That lawyer was none other than longtime Jackson attorney Howard Weitzman. Howard Weitzman, W-E-I-T-Z-M-A-N. I'm um, one of the attorneys for the estate of Michael Jackson with respect to this interview that we're in process on. We were joined by another lawyer for the Jackson estate. Yeah, and this is Jonathan Sainz-Sapir, and I'm also an attorney for the estate of Michael Jackson um, and you know, worked on the Wade Robson and James Safechuck litigation. Jonathan Stein-Sapir and Howard Weitzman are partners with some other lawyers in a law firm in Santa Monica. Although they had been in litigation with Robson and Safechuck for a number of years, they were surprised to learn at the time that on January 25th, 2019, a film called Leaving Neverland was set to premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. Here's Jonathan Steinsapir's recollection. We found out about it um, when it was announced publicly. So, and when I say we, I mean the entire estate, everyone involved with the estate, and also the Jackson family, which is not, you know, the estate. Those are just separate people, but certainly they didn't know about it either. Um, but it, it, when we saw the announcement, it, it described two men. Um, it said their approximate ages, and we figured it was probably Wade Robson and James Safechuck. I was seven years old. Michael asked, do you and the family want to come to Neverland? I have a fairy tale. Hello, Wade. Today is your birthday, so congratulations. I love you. Goodbye. There's no thoughts of this is wrong or anything like that. He told me if they ever found out what we were doing, he and I would go to jail for the rest of our lives. Prior to the film's premiere at Sundance, some Jackson fans shared the email addresses of Jackson estate lawyers John Branca and Howard Weitzman on social media and encouraged fans to copy and paste the content of a pre-written letter to ensure the attorneys took steps to discredit the claims of Wade Robeson and James Safechuck. Fans also left comments on the accounts of celebrities considered friendly to Michael Jackson to pressure them to stop the screening. Hours before its premiere at Sundance, according to Variety, the IMDb page for the film was hacked by an angry Jackson fan who retitled the movie Liar Liar 2, The Wade Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck Story. Jackson fans hoped for a stirring protest in Park City, Utah, but initially only two women who had driven down from Canada showed up, according to the New York Times. Later, the number of protesters grew, but only to about 20 to 25 people, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Even still, police dogs patrolled the venue, and attendees at the premiere were screened by metal detectors. A Park City police captain, Phil Kirk, told a reporter from the Hollywood news site Deadline.com that the department had beefed up its staffing in anticipation of protests. And yes, his name would be Captain Kirk. Because of the graphic descriptions of sexual abuse in the film, there were even healthcare professionals on hand in case audience members needed counseling. Following the screening, director Dan Reed and subjects Wade Robeson and James Safechuck took the stage and received a standing ovation. Toward the end of a Q&A session, an audience member asked what they had to say, if anything, to Michael Jackson fans 
who thought they were lying about the molestation. Back there? You? Yeah. Um, there are fans of Mr. Jackson who don't believe your story or perhaps don't want to believe it. Um, I think it's hard not to after seeing the film, but what, what, is there anything that you feel that you can say to them to, to make them see the film and, and to, to at least hear this story out? Wade Robeson, at the time a 36-year-old man, took the microphone to answer. I don't feel like there's anything that I need to say to them, um, except, um, except that I understand that it's really hard for them to believe. Um, because, in a way, not that long ago, I was in the same position they were. Even though it happened to me, I still couldn't believe it. And I still couldn't believe that what Michael did was a bad thing. So I understand. And um, I don't know, we can, we can only accept and understand something when we're ready. And maybe we'll never be ready. Maybe we won't. Um, so that's, that's their journey. Following the Sundance premiere of Leaving Neverland, the Jackson estate and the filmmakers began a tit-for-tat. First, the estate said in a statement that Leaving Neverland, quote, isn't a documentary. It is the kind of tabloid character assassination Michael Jackson endured in life and now in death. The film takes uncorroborated allegations that supposedly happened 20 years ago and treats them as fact. The two accusers testified under oath that these events never occurred, to which Leaving Neverland director Dan Reed responded in an interview with USA Today, How can you call a four-hour documentary tabloid? That beats me. Reed went on, It's pretty much what you'd expect them to say. The statement contains nothing that is of concern and no substantial criticism of the film. They obviously haven't seen it, and I'm not engaging with the substance of what they're saying. On February 7th, Howard Weitzman wrote a 10-page letter to HBO chief executive Richard Plepler, where he offered to meet with HBO executives and promised to prove to them that leaving Neverland subjects Wade Robeson's and Jimmy Safechuck's stories about molestation were false. In the interim, critics, who were at the Sundance premiere, wrote think pieces on how they and society would have to wrestle with and reckon what they felt was devastating truth put forward by the filmmakers, that Michael Jackson was, after all these years, proven to be a child molester. Dead people can't sue for defamation in the United States, so the Jackson estate couldn't pursue that avenue. Instead, lawyers for the estate filed a petition for arbitration growing out of an old relationship between Jackson and HBO. Basically, they were asking for a tribunal to arbitrate a commercial dispute, here in the hopes of securing over $100 million in damages from HBO. The petition for arbitration, dated February 21, 2019, laid out a series of points and arguments, including Michael Jackson is innocent, period, and was acquitted on all charges in 2005. Michael Jackson was a childlike genius who never had a childhood, quoting lyrics from Jackson's song, Have You Seen My Childhood?, to bolster this point. 
Wade Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck waited until Jackson died because they didn't want to be held liable for defamation. Remember Victor Gutierrez? Yes, the document actually brings up the Victor Gutierrez wormhole. Robeson and Safechuck were admitted perjurers, the petition alleges, and were using the documentary to bolster their lawsuits against the Jackson estate. Finally, the prosecutor Tom Snedden was obsessed with getting Michael Jackson, but failed in 2005. The lawyers representing the Jackson estate claimed that by showing the documentary, HBO violated a non-disparagement clause in the 1992 contract HBO signed with Michael Jackson to cablecast a special taping of his Dangerous World Tour concert. Because Leaving Neverland painted Michael Jackson as a child abuser, the lawyers argue, HBO violated the 1992 concert contract. HBO released Leaving Neverland on March 3, 2019. I should note here, too, that the case was moved to federal court, the Central District Court, which covers Southern California, in May. For now, it remains there as the two sides fight over which jurisdiction the case should be heard. I asked former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, who interviewed Wade Robeson as part of her investigation of Jackson in 1993, if she'd seen Leaving Neverland. She had. When I watched what it did to those two young men and how troubled they must have been for for years and and now what a cathartic thing it is but you know my husband and I we had a conversation about whether Wade if if Michael wasn't gone whether he would even have ever told the story I, I just I don't know you know, in, in all my years of um, interviewing kids and, and prosecuting those types of cases, um, I don't, I mean, all the kids would open up to me. They would talk to me, but this was so different. He was so manipulating. Uh, sure, you know, a lot of little kids, uh, they get scared and, and uh, threatened and all of that, and they don't talk, but eventually they do. This was something, I think, well beyond that, and I think it had a lot to do with who he was, the greatest. Everyone loved him. Stars, you know, heads of government, all of that. I mean, it all played a role in it. Weiss told me that she thought that if prosecutors had Wade Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck as witnesses, along with Jordan Chandler, Michael Jackson would have been convicted. And plus we had the, the photographs that corroborated what uh, Jordy said uh, about what his penis looked like. So, you know, we would have had a case. That's the other emotion that I had. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's really a shame. It's really a shame uh, that it went on and other kids were affected. And uh, that's just the way it is. But... Uh, I totally understand what happened to uh, to Jimmy Safechuck and, and Wade Robson. I, I totally understand it. Um, I thought the documentary really, uh, really put that across. Author and critic Margot Jefferson also found Leaving Neverland to be convincing. Everything that they said, their presence reminded us that, you know, all of this material 
uh, has been in, <laughs> in, in our sight, in plain sight, since the first um, sexual abuse charges in the 90s. There was Jordan Chandler. There was been there was the trial with Gavin Arbizo. There was, you know, Michael Jackson saying, yes, it's innocent. And yes, I share in my bed with children. You know, so there, there is all this material. Um, sure, you know, circumstantial and, you know, interpreted in different ways. But there's no way to deny that that the material to evidence, you know, on a continuum of material to virtually evidence has been around us for a couple of decades now. Following the release of Leaving Neverland on HBO, Oprah Winfrey hosted an interview special with the filmmaker, Dan Reed, and the two subjects of his documentary, Wade Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck. In the Oprah special, they discuss the many issues and misconceptions of sexual abuse. According to Margot Jefferson, that follow-up by Oprah was very effective in highlighting that oftentimes child sexual abuse is not an act, but rather a seduction. You know, she was so vehement and, you know, utterly compelling, I thought, um, you know, about making that clear. And also, you know, basically saying to the filmmaker, look, I've been trying to do this. You know, you've done it in one four-hour documentary. Um, you know, you've, you've galvanized um, awareness and consciousness in a way that all my shows probably didn't. Um, it, it's also true that, you know, over the last couple of decades, don't you think, um, what with the Catholic Church revelations, um, and, you know, and more and more, and then most recently, you know, um, Me Too is, began and is, tends to be centered on adult women, but it is absolutely um, highlighted the the power differentials and all of those the dynamics that that can create. Oh, I thought it was brilliantly done. I mean, I think Dan Reed is remarkable in, in what he was able to accomplish with that. Former prosecutor Ron Zonin. Um, I've also never seen anything quite like it before because uh, it went for four hours and in four hours he really was able to develop the theme. Um, in terms of what happened to these two boys as boys and how their lives were transformed as men. And I'm not sure that I've ever seen on screen anything that more accurately describes the consequences of child sexual abuse, long-term pervasive child sexual abuse on an adult, what happens to them as they're an adult, as they get into a marriage and struggle with the relationship, as they have children, and look into the eyes of their children and decide, am I a fit parent given what happened to me? I thought that Dan presented that beautifully, just masterfully. And I can't imagine that anybody who devoted the four hours of their life to watch that from beginning to end would walk away thinking that they're just doing this, fabricating it for the payoff. I don't see that anybody could possibly come to that conclusion. It was, it was, uh, it was enthralling. All right, so what I want to know, obviously, is did Mesero, did Thomas Mesero ever watch um, Leaving Neverland? Well, I'd seen him appear on a number of shows discrediting the documentary and saying Wade Robeson and Safe Chuck were liars. So I asked him in a follow-up interview if he saw it. No, I didn't. I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to dignify it. I've been interviewed a number of times, and I've said repeatedly that I've never met 
save Chuck. I was aware of the statement he had made. There was no reason for me to talk to save Chuck because the prosecution wanted to bring evidence into the trial that safe Chuck had been molested and judge Melville wouldn't allow them to. So there was no, since safe Chuck was not going to be an issue in the trial, there was no reason for me to even talk to him. Why do you think he didn't want to allow safe Chuck? He said it was too distant in time. I think it may have been over 10 years. And, um, I think it was, you know, he already was allowing them to bring in evidence that five other young men were molested. And so he precluded Safe Chuck, any evidence of Safe Chuck allegedly being molested from coming in. So there was no reason for me to be concerned with Safe Chuck. I did meet with Wade Robson, who I was told had voluntarily come to Neverland with his mother and his sister. I met with him, I met with the mother, I met with the sister. They were all adamant that Michael Jackson had done nothing improper with Wade Robson. I met with him for quite a bit of time. He impressed me as very articulate, very intelligent, very personable, very likable. And he was adamant that Michael Jackson had never improperly touched him. To the point where he was so strong that I made him our first witness. And as you may know, when in a criminal case, if the defense decides to put on a defense case, they usually want to start strong and end strong. And I thought I was starting very strong by having him begin the defense case. And Zonin went after him tooth and nail in cross-examination. And he held his ground very firmly. And, you know, I called his mother, I called his sister because, you know, they had traveled with Wade and Michael on some of these trips. They said they never suspected anything improper was going on. As I recall, I think they said they had slept in his bed as well, I think. Um, Any rate, they were all very strong witnesses for Michael Jackson. So my only experience with Wade Robson was in that trial. And I'm not gonna watch Leaving Neverland. I'm not gonna dignify it with my presence or attention. And I don't believe any of the things that are being said today. Part of the estate's responsibility is to protect, uh, to preserve, and in effect to perpetuate Michael's legacy, which includes his profile and his image. Jackson estate attorney Howard Weitzman. And this was less to the estate and more to that uh, responsibility that the state has. Um, that I think upset all of us. So there was a segment of the community that that had embraced Michael for many, many years that um, became very vocal about how they now looked at him and thought about him, and, and that's what was upsetting to us and what we believe we had a responsibility to try and 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 balance, uh, you know, to, uh, so to speak, to keep the playing field even, which we didn't believe it was. I still don't believe it is with respect to this uh, film. Part of the leveling of the playing field has come with a number of fan-made mini-documentaries aimed at discrediting the accusations made in Leaving Neverland. These videos pick apart Wade Robeson for once defending Jackson publicly or in court, for misremembering events around his alleged molestation, or 
to criticize the director, Dan Reed, for what Jackson supporters argue are manipulative filmmaking techniques. Intense sexual abuse. Titles like Chase the like Truth. Watching a court case where you heard the prosecution and no defense. Lies of Leaving Why Neverland. Michael Jackson changed the world and more personally my life forever. He is the reason I dance. The reason I make music. Debunking Leaving Neverland. Robson wrote that nothing sexual happened during the first two evenings. And, that and Neverland firsthand have cropped up on YouTube, some gaining more attention than others. Did you unearth any actual evidence that proves Michael Jackson was a pedophile? Your conviction mm. of Michael Jackson. No doubt there are many more to come. Obviously, this is all alleged. But it's hard to deny uh, that this book shares many similarities with James Safechuck's lawsuit and stories. This just gets wilder every single day. So my question is, because I know there was one documentary that I believe the family funded uh, with that Australian kid with the curly hair. Um, and That's then there's a true, lot of fan-made ones. In a previous episode of Telephone Stories, I stated that the mini-documentary Neverland Firsthand was released by the Jackson family. It's not. I don't, I don't even know what... clarify no. that for me, John? Jackson estate attorney Jonathan Stein-Sapir. That, again, is, is misinformation that HBO put in its brief saying the family had funded that. Um, that's completely false. Uh, that was put on by, the I think, a New Zealand uh, DJ. He did interview Taj and Brandy Michaels, um, among Michaels' nephews and nieces, but... He funded it, the Jackson family didn't fund it, and the estate did not fund that. Um, it was well done, but um, it was not done by us. That was just misinformation put out by HBO. Whether the family actually funded the YouTube video or not, members of the Jackson family did take part in the video, and it was seen as Vanity Fair and other outlets reported as the family's response and pushback against the documentary Leaving Neverland. To that, can you just clarify for for our listeners and for me, all these Leaving Neverland, anti-Leaving Neverland thing, docs that are coming out, you guys have no hand in that. This, the estate has no hand in funding those. Not that I know of. And there's a pretty good chance I would know about it. And, you know, there, there was the first one, which was just about Wade Robson, uh, was done by a fan. And in fact, she had prepared it before she knew about leaving Neverland. She had been following the case pretty closely and put together, uh, I think she's, she's from abroad, um, and she put together something about Wade Robson, and she actually just rushed it out quickly when she heard about the documentary. Um, you know, a lot of Jackson fans follow these cases pretty closely. Seems like the attacks from you guys and Branka and the estate lawyers and the Jackson family are centered on the fact that uh, – Robson or Robson and Safechuck are, you know, quote, admitted liars for having lied on the witness stand. I think we featured a number of child psychology and child abuse experts as well as FBI behavioral profilers who say that most male child victims of sexual abuse tend to have foggy developing memories of their abuse. So there can be inaccuracies in the statements of when things happen, how long, where exactly. They often defend their abuser, oftentimes in court. And then they typically disclose the abuse after they've started a family. How do you reconcile that? Because doesn't it seem very much consistent with the pattern of abuse and disclosure that Wade and Jimmy are alleging in Leaving Neverland? It does if you want to believe him, and it doesn't if you don't want to believe him. Here's what I know. No expert, 
no psychiatrist, no lawyer on the outside, no witness, no one says it happened or what happened. So, so you start there. My training as a trial lawyer is to test credibility. So when you start with people who have uh, told a story consistently for a number of years one way under oath, I hear what they're alleging now. I hear the, the experts if such a trial happened. Um, I don't have to believe it, nor do I believe it. But my job is to test the truth. Now, we're just talking about your reference to under oath and what the psychiatrist, psychologist say. Um, when you mix that in with factual misstatements that are provable to be wrong, then that gives, should give one pause whether or not the, the, the recreated recollection is real or it's totally fiction. And last and not least, this is a lawsuit about money. You know, I've, I've gone down the deepest, darkest wormhole with these Jackson fan pages and conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff that Diane Diamond and Oprah Winfrey are in a cabal with uh, Harvey Weinstein and um, Sony that uh, put the propofol needle in. You know, it just gets, gets bananas. But some of them you know, talk, ter say terrible things about John Branca and say he screwed over Jackson and, you know, stole the estate from the mom and stuff like that. Is it is it a difficult or a hearty relationship between the estate and some of these diehard fans of the, you know, hashtag Jackson Army? Because it seems like, you know, to some extent they're doing your bidding by discrediting leaving Neverland with these documentaries. But, you know, the hardcore ones are also stalking and harassing accusers like Wade, Jimmy, and Gavin Arvizo, and they take screenshots of their social media and post their, you know, real estate um, purchases and, you know, have made death threats against some. Is that a fine line to walk for you guys to kind of keep the Jackson Army appeased, but also utilize their ability to kind of unite and defend Jackson's legacy? I'm not sure. Well, for me personally, I don't think I ever looked at it that way. This is a very active group of supporters. They love Michael. They don't like anything that takes away from who Michael was or is. Do they send us emails and suggestions? Yes. Do they send us sometimes um, harsher messages than you'd like to receive? Yes, but um, I, I, I don't think any of us take it um, seriously in terms of threats. Some of it's useful, some of it's not. I mean, the people that say, for example, I'm just using your term, that John Branker took these fade away from, from, from Mrs. Jackson. Well, of course, there was a will, and the will kind of dictated what happens. So it doesn't work that way. And uh, the, the fan clubs, although I know most know about it, the fans, when Michael died, he was bankrupt, basically, and in debt, half a billion dollars. And that's certainly not the case today. So someone, which was Branca and McLean and the team, built a business. 
post-death that that is incomparable. Yeah, and let me just jump in on uh, to talk about the fans for a second. Attorney Jonathan Stein Sapir. Um, Michael Jackson had millions of fans and, and still does. Anytime you take a group of millions of people, there's going to be a very small subset of any group that's not that's going to be a little off. Um, and 99.9% of Michael Jackson's fans including the very passionate fans who have done a very good job discrediting Lever Neverland, are not making death threats. They're not harassing any of these alleged victims at all. So, um, you know, I, I would say that 99.9% .9 of Michael Jackson's fans are great, um, and they're not doing those, those kinds of things. They're defending someone that they have a lot of love for and feel that it's unfair that he's been attacked like this after his death. Um, and it's not a program like yours, which is, you know, doing both sides and, and trying to present a clear picture. Um, it was really a hit piece, and they're offended by that. And, you know, that is what it is. I asked former Jackson attorney Carl Douglas if he thought Jackson's fans would ever come to believe the accusations of Wade Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck or any of the other accusers. I remember... Uh, Wayne Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck being witnesses in our case and strong supporters in our case and examples of others that Michael would befriend and were supporting him in our case. And I understand all of what you're saying about when you grow up and, and the impact and, and, and how that kind of changes many, I'm sure, of his fans will go to their graves believing in his righteousness. Sure. And just like I'm sure, you know, I don't want to compare the two, but, you know, I'm sure there are fans of R. Kelly who would say, oh, the, the, the accusers are all lying. That kind of a thing. So, um, it's kind of the sick way that we Westerners embrace celebrity, um, be it athletic celebrity, political celebrity. How else can you explain our current president and those who will support him with all of the various kinds of accusations that are every bit contrary to who they are in every other context. But they will embrace and defend him to the last day. In fact, that's a great analogy. The Michael Jackson effect is being evidenced even today with Donald Trump. He'll have his 35% core believers if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue in the face of all of the people who were surrounding him, pleading guilty, in the face of his own words and comments, in the face of how he has done everything outside the accepted norm, there are senators who support him. I mean, that's even more tragic than somebody from Indiana loving Michael Jackson records and not believing, you know, Jordy Chandler. You know what I'm saying? That, that's even worse, I say. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com On August 16th, 2019, HBO petitioned the court to throw out the estate's claims of violating the non-disparagement clause in the 1992 contract on First Amendment grounds of free speech. A hearing is set for September 19, 2019. At the time of this writing, Leaving Neverland has been rated the third most viewed HBO documentary debut of the past decade, according to Nielsen numbers reported by TheRap.com. It was also recently nominated for five Emmys, including Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. The fearsome patriarch of the Jackson family, Joseph Jackson, didn't live to see his son's name dragged through the mud once again with leaving Neverland. He died on June 27, 2018. According to his obituary in the Associated Press, shortly before the death of Michael Jackson, Joseph showed up at his Homely Hills residence where Michael was staying while preparing for the This Is It concerts. Joseph wanted to see his three grandchildren. Security guards turned him away. Others in this Jackson saga have also passed away. As noted before, former Jackson attorney Johnny Cochran died in March of 2005 of complications from a brain tumor. Johnny Cochran's protege, attorney Carl Douglas, explains... He was always one with the first kid on the block with the newest thing. And he had the brick Nokia cell phones back in the day. And they were not as good as they are now. And his neurosurgeon would say his use of the early styles of cell phones led to, he thinks, led to the tumor in his head that led to his death eventually. Thomas William Sneddon Jr., the good Irish Catholic, the boxer, the family man, the longtime district attorney for Santa Barbara, the coach 
to hundreds of at-risk youth, softball leagues and fundraisers for substance abuse centers and women's shelters died from complications of cancer on November 1st, 2014, at the age of 73. He is survived by his wife Pamela Sneddon and their nine children. It was reported that he kept a quote on his desk widely attributed to Mother Teresa. It read, Give the world the best you can, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Other key players in this saga, such as members of the Arvizo family, or June Chandler, or Jordan Chandler, live as anonymously as possible, although some diehard Jackson fans continue to monitor their whereabouts online. Former private investigator to the stars, Anthony Pelicano, served more than 15 years in prison for wiretapping, wire fraud, racketeering, and weapons charges. He was released from the Federal Correctional Institution at Terminal Island on March 22, 2019. According to an article in Deadline, citing unnamed sources, some of Pelicano's former Hollywood clients have rewarded him with a fund in the six figures to help him get back on his feet. In the decades since Jackson's death, the participants who had a front row seat to the investigations chronicled here have gone their separate ways, some of them moving on with their lives. Hello. Hey, Bert. How are you? I'm fine, Brandon. And you? Good. We had a baby in March, so we got a four-month-old oh, at home now. Thanks. Her name's Maggie. Oh, boy or girl? Girl named Maggie. At age 90, Bert Fields continues to represent celebrity clients in Hollywood. He also has authored a number of books on the life of William Shakespeare and plays the vibraphone with the band Le Du Love Orchestra, led by Bobby Woods. Maggie, okay. Yeah, Maggie Jane. And, uh, she's Maggie, a, not Margaret, huh? You, we just went straight with Maggie. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Have you had a good spring and summer so far? Everything is just fine, thank Bert you. Bert Fields is currently friends. vacationing with his wife, Barbara Guggenheim, at one of their homes outside of Paris. While there, Bert is editing his memoir, which he's titled Summing Up. Bert definitely enjoys life. We've had plenty of meals and shared great bottles of wine together. But by the way, I'm more fun than Bert. Howard Weitzman, although embroiled in litigation for the Jackson estate, continues to live an enviable life and, by my account, takes very good care of himself. I need to know, what is your routine? Because I don't know how old you are, but you look younger now than the clips I found. What's going on? That, by the way, that can't be a serious question. <laughs> I eat healthy. I work out quite regularly. I work with um, a lot of uh, interesting people, I think, that are intellectually stimulating. This is no bullshit, and I'm lucky, and lucky should be in bold letters. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss continues to work in the criminal justice system. She enjoys traveling and her dog. Uh, my dog's name is River. Uh, he's, uh, we don't know what he is, part golden and part cattle dog, probably. Oh, my God. Uh, so we, he's just the cutest thing and just great. Are you still in touch with um, Gil Garcetti and Bill? Yes. 
Not not uh, all the time. Uh, every so often, I'll see Gil, uh, and um, he's pretty busy with the art stuff. Yes, he's an amazing photographer. I actually have a few of his books. Former Assistant District Attorney Bill Hodgman, who declined to be interviewed for this series, retired from the DA's office at the beginning of 2019. According to Lauren Weiss, he's using his newly acquired free time for exercise. Uh, Hodgman, I'll see uh, every now and then. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. Hodgman is a real straight shooter and has always been a really great guy, wonderful person. Former Jackson employee and prosecution witness Rudy Provincio continues to work in the music industry and sees the Michael Jackson story from a very unique perspective. Somewhere down the line, he forgot who he was and became a parody of himself. I believe that we wouldn't have had this cast of characters if he was not on drugs. This isn't a conversation about bashing Michael Jackson. This is a conversation about a artist that I worked with who happened to be on drugs. And there are no new stories here. There really isn't. This is a story of greed, um, selfishness. The Michael Jackson story is interesting because it is one of the most famous people that ever lived. And this is what I give to the fans. Don't don't evoke negative things. Get get involved with making the world a positive place. If you really believe in Michael's legacy, you'll do it. If you don't and you're phony baloney and you just want to be negative and live in someone else's shadow rather than being your own hero, go for it. It's America. You can do whatever you want. Since Leaving Neverland aired, reporter Diane Diamond has added four new juicy chapters to her audiobook about the Jackson cases. Be careful who you love. The Michael Jackson story is something I just cannot seem to shake. It's always there. I, I continue to this day to get tips about potential victims and other odd things that happened in Jackson's life. But my life is very different now. I'm writing another book. I live in a little tiny village on the Hudson River with my husband and two cats. I love to garden. Um, you know, life is good. And there's a lot more to life than just the Michael Jackson story for me. Former media pool coordinator for the 2005 trial, Peter Shaplin, is a professor and instructor at the Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio University and also at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. He also works in the private sector. What I'm doing most of these days is working with companies and individuals who find themselves in a message crisis, uh, an event something that, that they, they certainly didn't ask to have happen to them, but but they have to explain, they have to articulate and, and explain it to the media, to the world. So I'm doing a lot of that work. I asked Peter Shaplin if he ever suggests that a company use humor to defuse a crisis. Dangerous. Really dangerous. I never recommend humor. It's just, it's just too uncertain. True crime author Aphrodite Jones continues to busy yourself with, well, murder. I have this new podcast. It's called This Is Murder. You can find it at This Is Murder Podcast. Jesse Butterfuso is my co-host. And we are just finishing up season two and we'll release that. It will drop probably, I'm going to say, late September, beginning late September for 12 episodes. 
And at the same time, I'm getting ready to do some appearances on Dr. Oz. And I just covered the El Chapo trial, which was unbelievable. Dr. Stan Katz continues to advocate for child safety and welfare as a clinical and forensic psychologist in Los Angeles. He continues to believe that Gavin Arvizo told the truth. I'm not so surprised that a man without a childhood who was a superstar um, would be fixated and regressed in his sexual choices and sexual pleasure. But I do know the fans love him. And, you know, there's something what we, we call the halo effect in psychology. And the halo effect means that if we like somebody, we tend to put a halo around them. So, for example, if you think Jackson's the best singer in the world, you want to believe he's the best man in the world. We've done this with John Wayne. We do this with characters all the time. We do it with presidents at times. And this halo effect is a very powerful psychological effect because it is what keeps our, our opinions congruent. We, we love this person, so we're not going to let anything damaging into that psychological set. And, and he was one of the most talented people, but I think that people are fallible and... and they're not perfect. And he was imperfect, in my opinion, in other ways, but incredible in, uh, incredibly talented. So I wrote a new introduction to the Michael Jackson book. Critic and memoirist Margot Jefferson, who authored On Michael Jackson, has updated her book with an introduction to clarify her belief that Michael Jackson was a child molester. Like everybody else, um, I had to grapple with uh, the film, the charges, um, and all of these questions that all of us um, are immersed in now, um, you know, thanks to um, Me Too, uh, about, you know, the art, the, the life, you know, how you, how you negotiate those. You try not to settle for platitudes um, and, you know, just commonplace um, simplicities. Outside of her work, Margot Jefferson says she enjoys drinking and dining with friends, going to concerts and museums. She is also working on a new book. Do you have a new title for your upcoming work or no? Um, I don't yet, no. Okay, no. so I won't, like, plug it, plug it. I'll just leave it uh, in that you're working on a new book. Exactly. Actually, you know, there's a, it's a title in progress, but it's just strictly, you know, a kind of placeholder, which is um, a multiple self. I love that title. Oh, thanks. Oh, good. <laughs> Titles are my favorite thing to come up with, and that's a very good title. Oh, go oh, that's encouraging. Thanks. Former Jackson attorney Carl Douglas continues his law practice in Los Angeles, among many other interests. I watch CNN, ESPN, and the Food Network. I'm divorced, and I enjoy working at my office. I tell my staff, this is the one place on earth where I am king. So I love that. I am a competitive freak. Um, because I'm a plaintiff, I make money and then spend it. I can't fathom not working. When I asked him if he believed that Jackson was guilty, Douglas responded, I do my job and then move on to the next case and don't dwell. Um, I may not take a certain case because I'm not comfortable with, with the subject matter, but if I'm there, I'm a fight like anything and try to win 
according to the law, and then move on. I don't dwell on whether Joe Blow actually killed the person that I'm defending. I could not do my job for the next guy if I had those kinds of lingering feelings or doubts. Okay, um, I am proud of the work I did on behalf of Michael Jackson. I avoided a criminal charge. So I don't, I don't have a personal thought that I would want to share because one, I'm still working every day, still defending those who have been accused of crimes who may, may have been responsible for the crimes and would never want anyone to believe that my personal thoughts about a client could interfere with my professional zeal to represent that client as best I can. Uh, I like kayaking and bicycling and hiking and just living in Santa Barbara and spending time with my wife and and, uh, just doing the things that people who live in Santa Barbara like to do. Prosecutor Ron Zonin is transitioning into a private practice in Santa Barbara. You, you and your heart of hearts believe that Michael Jackson is a pedophile? Oh, yeah. No, he had one child after another in bed with him. I never bought into the notion that he was simply a severe case of arrested development, that he just liked being in the company of children. You don't take a child into your bed all night for weeks at a time, or in the case of, um, of Brett Barnes, for a year as they traveled through Europe with him giving performances in one place or another, and no other adult there. The parents were always shuffled to some other location. I never believed that was true. He had a room full of pornography. He, had a, he wasn't a child at heart. He wouldn't have been in pornography. He would have been doing all the drugs he was doing or the alcohol that he was drinking that was in his room as well. He showed the kids pornography. This, this was, was classic behavior of a pedophile. It wasn't the behavior of someone who simply stopped growing after the age of 11. Well, my view of Michael is this, uh, and a lot of this is connecting dots, but I certainly knew him during a very ugly chapter in his life and was intensely involved with him in a very intense period where he could have died in prison and could have been disgraced for the rest of his life. Although mostly known for cases involving famous clients, attorney Thomas Mesereau is an advocate for pro bono volunteer legal services. He established a legal clinic in Los Angeles and personally accepts one capital murder case each year from a defendant in the Deep South who cannot afford representation. He continues to maintain his belief in Michael Jackson's complete innocence. And to sum things up, uh, my view is this, and I'll speak somewhat hypothetically. If you take a child who grows up in poverty, in the hood, in a home with nine other people, Uh, in two bedrooms and the father works very hard in a steel mill Uh, there's a lot of crime in the neighborhood Uh, people are desperately trying to survive and the father has a dream of being in the music industry and making his children into a, a successful band and at some point the family wakes up and they look at this young child and they realize he's a genius and he can take himself and the family very far in the entertainment world. 
And before you know it, a four- and five-year-old is rehearsing till three in the morning, only getting a few hours sleep to get up and go to school, is signing contracts and documents he couldn't possibly understand, is booked on weekends to appear in CD strip clubs in Chicago and Detroit, uh, who hardly has a life of his own other than fulfilling the expectations of those around him. And one thing leads to another, as it always does in life. Uh, his genius be, is very developed at an early age. Uh, his talents ready for the world to see at an early age. Uh, he matures quickly because of the difficult and confusing and very unchildlike experiences that he has. And he wakes up one day and he's the best known dancer and musical genius on the planet who feels he never had a childhood at all. And let's face it, human beings always dream of having what they don't have. And you learn at an early age that people can be deceitful and greedy and selfish and make you think they're your friend when they're really not. You can think of another reason why this very successful genius might have thought to himself, not only was I denied, denied a childhood, but children are the only people that aren't going to put their hands in my pocket and take things from me. You know, he very openly built Neverland as a place where he could be childlike, where children from the inner city and other locations could go and have fun at the zoo and have fun in the amusement park. I mean, he was very open about all of this. And there's nothing wrong with anything that I'm describing. Unfortunately, the world is filled with cynical, crude, selfish, greedy people who, in my opinion, uh, tried to take it a step further and look, through, look for a sinister underlining to all of this and came to conclusions about him that I believe were totally false. On April 26, 2018, Thomas Mesro lost his first high-profile celebrity trial. His client, Bill Cosby, was convicted of sexual assault. All right, Bubba, so I've got to ask this. You know, we've been leading towards this question um, for 13 episodes. Do you think he did it? I mean, after all of this, like, breaking down the minutiae of the cases and talking to everybody and all the interviews, and what do you think? I mean... What's your assessment? Well, um, you know, I'm prone to thinking that the um, simplest explanation is usually the correct explanation for, for whatever you're talking about. So I kind of feel like if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, you know, it's probably a duck. And it kills me to think um, about these things, especially since I have kids and it's it's terrible but when you're a 35 or 30-plus-year-old man um, sleeping with kids every night who aren't yours over and over and on tour for a year, and he's got pornography everywhere or adult content or material, wherever, whatever we called it, um, yeah, I think that he acted at the very least inappropriately with children. And it's terrible because, I mean, not only are the, what I think the crimes might have been um, terrible, obviously— but he was a hero of mine, and along with Luciano Pavarotti and, you know, Michael Jackson was one of the reasons I got into music. So it's, it's bumming me out, man. I've got to tell you, it's terrible. 
What else did you think of the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> yeah, because Abraham Lincoln was shot at the play with his wife. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's the other thing that I didn't mention is that we get into the difference between guilty and not guilty and innocent and and not innocent. You know, I mean, they're, they're different things. So we're talking about big philosophical problems also. Um, and I wasn't in the room and you weren't in the room. So I don't know. What do you think? Uh, you made me answer first and I'm going to ask you again. What do you think happened? Is he innocent or guilty? Did he do these things or not? You know, I, I'd go back to what we call it in the beginning there, our primal Michael Jackson memory. Right. And I just have like a million of them. I mean, yeah. seeing yeah, me the moonwalk. I remember seeing Macaulay Culkin having fun at Neverland, and I just wanted to be him so bad, you know, in the idea that this guy, this magical entertainer who, like, you know, literally inspired me to be creative, had this, you know, not just a complicated dark side you know that's a way of tapping around that you know he was he was probably a child molester you know and i don't eh, and i don't want to believe it you know yeah 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 same here man i mean i feel the same way uh i mean but there's a difference between um wanting to believe it and believe and believing it or not believing it yeah and i'm saying i think jackson's behavior was absolutely consistent with a child molester's behavior. I'm saying his alleged victim's behavior was absolutely consistent with what we've learned about the behavior of male child victims of sexual abuse. And I'm saying that Michael Jackson may have been so crafty with public relations and manipulating the people around him, probably even including his lawyers, who knows, his fans and the whole world, that he was in Neverland living a childhood he never got as a plausible deniability to cover, you know, this trust of adoring fans who lent them, you know, their sons for weeks and months on end where he groomed them and, you know, maybe fell in love with them or vice versa, but wore those boys down and manipulated them into sex and silence. And some of those boys came out and told the truth, you know? Right, 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 right. But I yeah, also I, have doubts. Yeah, I mean, I do too. Uh, what, what do you think? Over the years, Jackson's accusers could be painted with a broad brush. The arguments that they or their parents were after a big payday is compelling in its simplicity. Jordan Chandler settled for $20 million. Jason Franzia's mother settled for $2 million. As Thomas Mesereau and some Jackson fans argue, Gavin Arvizo's mother allegedly wanted to try to get a civil settlement if the prosecutors had won the criminal case. Now, a decade later, these two additional accusers, Wade Robeson and Jimmy Safechuck, are suing the Jackson companies and seeking unspecified damages that could total many millions of dollars. As to the former Jackson employees who came forward to have witnessed molestation, they sold their stories to tabloids, and some of them lost lawsuits against Jackson for big money. And why didn't they go to the authorities when they saw what they say they saw? Some of them argued because they wouldn't have been believed, and some described pressure 
and harassment from Jackson's team. Yet, they all seemed to come away wanting something from Michael Jackson. Right. Yeah. No, I I totally get it. Um, But, you know, I'll say with all this said, I came upon this document that's never come to light before, and it gave me pause. Oh, okay. What document? It's an interview that Marlon Brando gave to investigators at the DA's office months after Jackson settled the claim by Jordan Chandler. The reason, to me at least, why this Brando thing is meaningful in my assessment is that Marlon Brando was different from everyone else who figured in the Michael Jackson investigations. He was a famous actor. He was rich beyond measure. He owned a private island and he had a brood of children, unlike all the other people who were involved in allegations or spoke out against Jackson, Marlon Brando didn't want or need anything from him. And he had inside information. Um, all right, you're going to have to set this up for me then. On March 14th, 1994, at 2.20 p.m., Marlon Brando appeared on the 18th floor of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for an interview with Deputy District Attorneys Bill Hodgman and Lauren Weiss in the presence of a court reporter. Uh, we we had information. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. That Marlon Brando's son, Miko, who was Michael's driver at the time, had uh, made a statement that said he would, he, he said uh, he would never leave his kids alone with Michael Jackson. I don't know where we got that information, but we had that information. We also had information that Marlon Brando had a very special relationship with Michael, that uh, Michael Jackson was teaching Marlon Brando how to dance, and Marlon Brando was teaching Michael Jackson how to act. And so they had this relationship And we had information that Marlon had told Michael to set up bank accounts uh, to pay off uh, children's families. So we decided to interview Marlon Brando. And uh, we didn't take him in front of the grand jury. We did it in the DA's office with a uh, court reporter there. According to former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, At the time of the interview, Marlon Brando was about 100 pounds overweight and wore a seersucker suit straight off the rack with the tags still on the sleeves. And he looked like Sidney Greenstreet in Casablanca. And he, (laughs) I think he noticed the the tag, or maybe he didn't notice the tag, but I I did. And also his zipper was down, which he noticed during the interview. (laughs) He uh, there was an expletive uh, that he uttered uh, before zipping up his zipper. (laughs) I won't forget that one. In the interview, Marlon Brando described first meeting Michael Jackson at Quincy Jones's house. Soon after, Brando said his son Miko began working for Jackson as security and as a driver. Brando said he'd met Jackson three or four times for dinner, once after a Jackson concert, and then on subsequent visits to Havenhurst and then Neverland Ranch. In the interview, which was taped and transcribed, Brando was candid, sometimes offensive, 
in his assessment of some of Jackson's employees and associates. He referred to one of Jackson's lawyers as Yiddish and a schmuck, and speculated that another had left the case because he believed Jackson was guilty. Of Jackson's longtime security chief, Bill Bray, Brando said he's, quote, someone who likes to hide, smooth, frightening. This guy is dangerous. He's got a thick front, and you've got to get into him with a cold chisel. He's been in the LAPD a long time, and he's got a lot of friends, and he made it a point to get a lot of friends. Brando asked the investigators if they'd spoken to Bill Bray. They hadn't. Lauren Weiss asked Brando why it was significant to him that Bray hadn't been interviewed. Brando answered, Oh, because of all the people that know about Michael Jackson, he knows everything. Later, Brando called Bray a big manipulator. Brando also said of Bill Bray, who died in 2005, If anybody would know anything, it would be Bill Bray. He's got the keys to the kingdom. Brando denied his son Miko had witnessed anything between Jackson and children. If Miko had been, had known anything, and if Michael had done anything that I knew for a fact that he was taking advantage of kids, I'd have laid it on him. But Brando was troubled anyway. He'd seen Jackson's public statement in response to the initial allegations and police search of his property, and it struck Brando as odd. Reflecting later, after the settlement with Chandler, Brando found Jackson's protestations of innocence even harder to believe. I saw him on the television. Just from the way he was talking, I thought, what the fuck is he, excuse me, what is he covering up? Because he came out, and he said this, and that, and the other thing, but he was saying it in such a funny way that I, I believe that. And then he went and settled with the, if that's true, he gave $20 million or something, 15? According to the transcript of the interview, which was taken under oath, under penalty of perjury, Brando said that he went up to Neverland Ranch to have dinner with Jackson, and then provided a long acting session. And we were talking about human emotions and where it all comes from, Brando said. I could see from the way he behaved, he talked like that, and he speaks in a very peculiar way for a man who is as old as my eldest son, 35. And he didn't want me to swear. He didn't want me to... He referred to it as the F word. I said, you mean fuck? Brando said he asked Jackson if he had ever had a woman. I had asked him if he was a virgin, and he sort of laughed and giggled, and he called me Brando. He said, oh, Brando. Brando went on. I said, well, what do you do for sex? And he was acting fussy and embarrassed. I said, do you jerk off? He lives in a completely separate world. Everybody around him plays the Michael game. Michael says, he says, this and that. Brando said in his acting session with Jackson, he asked him about his family because he wanted to see what his background was. I've always been interested in people and human motivations, why people do things they do, Brando told the prosecutors. I didn't want to talk to a cardboard cutout that you dangle on a string. This came out, I think, out of a discussion about acting, and he didn't hold real emotions. 
Impressed by the renowned actor, Jackson broke down. He said he hated his father and started to cry. So I pulled back, Brando said. I started to tiptoe. I realized that he was in trouble with his life because he was living in a never-never land and he couldn't say fuck. And for a 35-year-old man not to do that, being around people in show business, seemed very odd. And I said, well, who are your friends? He said, I don't know anybody my own age. I don't like anybody my own age. I said, why not? He said, I don't know. I don't know. Having pushed Jackson to tears, Brando now tried to comfort him. And he was crying hard enough that I didn't think that it was smart of me to... I tried to assuage him. I tried to help him all I could, Brando said. I've got 11 kids of my own. I thought he was... I actually thought he was homosexual, that he might be homosexual, Brando said. Now at this juncture in time, Brando said, no doubt, referring to the Jordan Chandler scandal. With this mode of behavior that's been going on, I think it's pretty reasonable to conclude that he may have had something to do with kids. This strange conversation between two of the world's best-known entertainers, both of them odd men, continued for a while. Jackson crying, Brando continuing to probe. Under questioning from the prosecutors, Brando said he thought there was something really wrong when Jackson flinched at the word promise. Brando said the word promise would frighten and upset Michael Jackson. Jackson never came out and said he was a homosexual, Brando said, nor did he openly acknowledge sexual relations with boys. But Brando wanted to know about Jackson's sex life, particularly if he had sex with children, and Jackson seemed shaken by Brando's questions, not answering them and continuing to cry. Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss pressed Brando. And when he didn't answer you, did you come away with an impression, she asked? Yeah, Brando answered, I did. What was your impression, Weiss asked. Brando responded, my impression was that he didn't want to answer because he was frightened to answer me. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ockborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates, who I will cherish forever. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. Our associate producer is Tess Ryan. And production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. Legal counsel for Telephone Stories is provided by the Law Office of Carlene Goller. If you have questions or comments, email feedback at telephonestoriespod.com. Is that it? Are we done? 
A few corrections for this episode. The jury verdict of Dr. Conrad Murray was broadcast by CBS News. The Sundance Q&A exchange between Wade Robeson and an unidentified audience member was filmed and uploaded to YouTube by film critic Scott Menzel. And the audio of Macaulay Culkin at Neverland was from Michael Jackson's home movies, which was uploaded to YouTube. This call is now being recorded. Hey, Bubba. Omar, where the where are you now? You're you're like, where's Waldo? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm camping with my son William. I took him up to uh, this place in the Los Padres National Forest. You know that Michael Jackson thing really took it out of me, man. So I thought, uh, you know, I took Will up for three nights and. Um, we're having a great time. We caught three trout and uh, went skinny dipping at, in a waterfall. We're doing it all, buddy. Doing everything, all the things. Good lord! Yeah, I need to get <laughs> out of here. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's, the, it's the last. It's, it's the end of the thing. You, you got anybody to thank? I got some things I got to say. Yeah, sure. Um, anybody to I thank mean, besides me? Our, I mean, our whole team. Um, you know, Carlene and Nona and Jim and, and Hans and uh, Ross and John, I mean, for his great music. I mean, yeah, I've got... Jacob, for, Jacob for the art, my good friend Jacob in of, New York. Of course. Of course, Jacob. Um, my Her wife. wife. Yes. Yeah. My wife, Jenna, who's supported me in thick and thin on this thing because it's been years. Yeah, I know. Me too. And every time I have to record, it's like... I, it's like I stand up from the table with a mouthful of food and just walk upstairs without saying anything because she knows I've got to go do something real quick. And but it's been like a year and a half of doing that. And so yeah. Well, and it's been three years of just recording and reporting on it. Um, yeah. I think we should thank all the people that listened all the way to the end of this shebang. You know, it, it's been. Yeah, isn't it like 800 hours of material or something? I mean, I don't even, I don't even know. I should know. <laughs> I also think uh, people I want to thank though are the listeners who emailed us over the past few weeks and months because uh, those have been incredibly encouraging. Even the ones that say they hate us and that we're too broy, which I don't understand because I'm a playwright and you're an opera singer. Um, but now that the series is over, <laughs> I, I would encourage them to email us one more time and let us know what they think. Um, I gotta say the, the, the social shit, all of our stuff, the emails feedback at telephonestoriespod.com and Instagram is at telephonestoriespod and then the Twitter is, which I don't run, is pod underscore stories and then facebook.com slash telephone stories. But I'm, I'm frankly totally exhausted by this thing. So if people just want to send us a picture of their dog, I think we'd appreciate it since we both put our old dogs down recently. Isn't that the truth? There's, thought, this, uh, there's this Louise in, in London that sent me a picture of her dog. She's very sweet. <laughs> yeah, it is nice, man. We do have great fans. And, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, you told me not to thank you, but I really have to thank you too, brother. I'm, I'm so grateful that we uh, got to work on this together, and I, I can't wait to see what happens next with us. Same. I hope you don't die in the mountains. <laughs> I always right. appreciate your, your heartfelt uh, nature, buddy. Thank you. I'll raise your son. Your son's wonderful. Oh, aren't you sweet? Yeah. All right. 
Um, I love you. Be safe. Um, bring some trout down for Labor Day. Love you too, buddy. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. There are three corrections for sourcing in this episode. The jury verdict of Dr. Conrad Murray was broadcast by CBS News. The Sundance Q&A exchange between Wade Robeson and an unidentified audience member following the premiere of Leaving Neverland was filmed and uploaded to YouTube by film critic Scott Menzel, editor-in-chief of We Live Entertainment. And the audio of Macaulay Culkin and his family at Neverland was from Michael Jackson's Private Home Movies, a special which aired on Fox on April 24, 2003, and is available on YouTube.